This morning's scripture reading is the same um, passage that we've been reading in the past few weeks. Um, the scripture comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. The past several weeks, we have been looking at culture shock in our Sunday morning sermons. We've been examining the Beatitudes, this list that Les just read to us. It's the type of people Jesus says are blessed. And we've been seeing how he calls us as his followers to live life. What does it take to experience blessing? Or as we've seen, when he says blessed, he actually means enviable. What does it live, look like to live the enviable life, the type of life that if people around you look at you, see you living this way, the proper response is to think, I wish I could be like that. I so wish I could be like that. And we've seen so far that just as moving from one country to another introduces you to ways of living that are totally different than anything you've ever seen or experienced before. When we transfer our allegiance from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of God, it presents us with a totally new way of living. And that new way of living often doesn't make sense to us if we're used to the world's way of living. It can be shocking, just like culture shock of moving from one country to another. I mean, just look at the list that Jesus has given us so far of the people who are blessed. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart. You know, the, the Hong Kong tattler each year puts together their list of Hong Kong's most eligible bachelors. Single ladies, keep an eye out. But these types of traits are not the things that are going to get you on that list. These types of traits, if someone is being considered for that list and they have some of these traits, they're just going to bury those traits and not mention them in the Hong Kong tattler because our world looks at this way of living that Jesus has been describing to us and it doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem desirable. It, it seems like something that actually might drive people away. Jesus' way of living is totally different than our world's way of living. The things that Jesus says bring blessing and make us enviable are totally opposite to what our world says brings blessing and makes us enviable. But today I've got good news. We finally got one that I think our world can get a bit more behind. Blessed are the peacemakers. 
Doesn't our world love peace? We put on all our Christmas cards, peace on earth, yay. Every beauty pageant contestant is expected to have a speech about how she supports and stands for world peace. We've got the Nobel Peace Prize. Some countries have holidays in, in memory of famous peacemakers like Martin Luther King in America, Gandhi in India. This should be an easy one, right? Peacemakers, don't get excited too fast. Because what we're gonna see today is that being a true peacemaker in the way that Jesus is discussing here is actually an incredibly difficult task. Actually an impossible task apart from God himself being at work in us. So let's dig in and see what Jesus is saying when he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. We're gonna look at understanding true peacemaking, the path to peace and the promise to the peacemakers. But first let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word, for teaching us how you call us to live life. Thank you that even when it doesn't make sense to us, you're willing to speak truth to us so that we can know more clearly how you call us to live in this world. We pray that you give us ears to hear, hearts to understand today, and a desire to not just hear and understand, but to live out this teaching in our lives because we love you and we want to honor you. Help us to be a blessing to our world as we do this. In Jesus' name, amen. So first off, understanding true peacemaking. Like I said, at first glance, this beatitude seems great. We all want peace. Even the people who work the hardest to destroy peace say they want peace. Like, I I don't know all the details of the situation in Ukraine right now. I'm not in Putin's head or his private meetings. But from everyone I've heard from and spoken to, it seems like Putin is just unprovoked attacking, bringing war and chaos and destruction and violence. But when he needs to give a public justification for the invasion, you know what he says? That they need to, quote, demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. He's launching a war, but publicly he says, it's for the sake of peace. I really just want peace. The world sees this unprovoked attack But at least in his defense of why he's doing it, he's saying it's for the sake of peace. Everyone claims that they want peace. But I think a lot of times we might not even understand what true peace is. Like if you look up peace in the dictionary, what's it going to say? I'll tell you because I did it this week. If you you Google it, it says freedom from disturbance or a period in which there is no war. That's typically what we talk about in our world when we're talking about peace. It's, it's a negative term talking about certain things like war and conflict that aren't there. But biblically, this term, peace, was so much bigger. The definition of peace for Google, it's just the negative, what's not there. But the Jewish world of the Bible, this word peace, yes, it involves some level of freedom from conflict, but it also meant overall well-being. It was actually a positive thing not just a negative thing. So if you were at war as a country and the war ended, but you still had a famine in your land, you didn't really have full and true peace because you weren't experiencing all around abundance as a country. You weren't flourishing as a country. Peace came when everything was going well, not just when the war itself stopped. And biblically, peace can operate at different levels. So you can have P 
peace in relationships between nations, like the Google definition. You can also have peace in your relationships with other individuals, like your friends and you can be at conflict or you can be at peace. Your family can be at conflict or at peace. Biblically, we can have peace or conflict in our relationship with God. We can also have peace or conflict just within our own minds. Peace can operate or conflict can operate on different layers and different levels of relationship. And it's a potential within every relationship in our lives. So when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, is he talking about all of those layers? Or is he specifically referring to one or two of them that he's specifically calling his followers to pursue peace in? Well, the word itself typically refers to people who bring or seek reconciliation. That can be in individual relationships with individual other people, either your own conflicts or conflicts of people around you. It can be in relationships with collective groups of people like nations at war and trying to bring peace between them. I think on a secondary level, he could be referring to helping people find peace in their relationship with God, but the primary focus is definitely on bringing peace between people in relationships with one another. If you look through the second half of the Beatitudes, the second half of the Beatitudes all tend to focus on our relationships with other people. And so the primary focus here is on bringing peace in relationships between people. And I think on one level, we all want this relational peace in our lives. Like, is there anyone who's like, I really just love having conflict with people? I'd prefer that over peace, right? Like, like we, we don't just want, and it's not just peace in the sense of we want no conflict. Like we want positive communication and interaction with other people. We want relational flourishing in our lives. We want relational health. We want positive friendships, not just, oh, I'm not actively at war with this person. And yet I, I'm guessing that each of us, if we were to stop and think for just a minute, could list out multiple people in our lives who we have some level of conflict with. I could be wrong, but I think each of us, even if it's not open conflict, we have multiple people in our lives with some level of conflict in that relationship. Or at least it falls far short of this flourishing in a relationship that we want. And why is that the case? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. The first is selfish desires. Look at what James chapter four, verses one through two says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. We all have selfish desires in us that lead us to act in ways that lead to conflict. And you know the other crazy thing? Everyone else around us has those same selfish desires that lead them to act in that way too. And even though we do the same thing ourselves, no one likes it when other people do it to us. And so we lash out at one another to try and get the things we want or to try and protect ourselves from having other people take those things from us. And those desires are at work in all of us. Like they're born into us. My one-year-old is right there on the back row. If he is playing with a toy, and you try and take it from him, you know what's gonna happen? War. Because he has a selfish desire for this toy 
and you are interfering with that selfish desire, and he is going to do whatever is in his power to get it back. And hopefully as we get older, we learn a little bit better self-control, but those desires don't go away. The fact that we act poorly when those desires are controlling us doesn't change. We, we just maybe mask it a little bit better. We put a smile on our face as we yank back at the toy that's being taken from us. We all have selfish desires that lead us to act toward others in ways that lead to conflict and destroy peace. But I mean, we all love peace, don't we? So even when these conflicts arise, why can't we just make peace and move on? And the answer is because we often settle for false peace. We often settle for false peace. I'm gonna let you in on a little secret about the way the world works. You ready? You listening? We all say we want peace in life, but we don't really. We all say we want peace, but we don't really. What we really want is to be comfortable. We wanna be able to sit back and pretend everything's okay. Don't rock the boat, just let me be comfortable. So if we're in a relationship and there's a conflict in that relationship, but it's below the surface, it's not causing any visible issues, we'd rather ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist than actually deal with it. I'm guessing many of us here have people we know who, who maybe have like family members they haven't spoken to in months or years because it's like, if I talk to this person, watch out. But as long as we're not talking, it's fine. There's a fear that, that communication could turn into conflict. So as long as we avoid communicating, there is no conflict. We're all good. And so rather than have an uncomfortable conversation, rather than deal with that conflict below the surface, rather than try to move on to a healthier place in the relationship, let's just avoid one another. If we both get invited to the same family dinner, we'll politely nod at one another and then sit at opposite ends of the table so we don't need to talk to one another. Or maybe one of us will call in sick that afternoon and pretend that we have a cold so we don't have to show up and interact. But true peace, it's about more than just absence of conflict. It's about relational flourishing. There's one Bible dictionary. It said most of the time the word peace appears in the Old Testament. It's referring to something you can see. Most of the time the word peace appears in the Old Testament. It's referring to something you can see. Having true peace brings about a visible change in the relationship that everyone around you, when they see it, is like, that's it. Something is different now from the way it was before in this relationship because there's peace. There's flourishing there. And true peace is great. It is wonderful. And yet it is so, so tempting to settle for false peace. Like Gandhi. We all know who Gandhi is, yeah? He did some amazing things for peace in the world. But even he could have a tendency to push for false peace that fell short of true flourishing. Did any of you know, at the start of World War II, he wrote a letter to the British people. Have you heard of this? He encouraged them to seek peace with Hitler. You know how to, you know how to get peace with Hitler? Here's what Gandhi said. I want you to fight Nazism without arms. Or if I am to retain the military terminology, with nonviolent arms. I would like you to lay down the arms you have as being useless for saving you or humanity. You will invite Herr Hitler and Signor Mussolini to take what they want 
of the countries you call your possessions. Let them take possession of your beautiful island with your many beautiful buildings. You will give all these, but neither your souls nor your minds. If these gentlemen choose to occupy your homes, you will vacate them. If they do not give you free passage out, you will allow yourself, man, woman, and child, to be slaughtered, but you will refuse to owe allegiance to them. Anyone interested in that type of peace with Hitler? No? No? Okay, good. We're all on the same page here. I mean, look what he's inviting them to do. Give Hitler your country. Let him bring his laws and rules to your country. Give him and his people your houses. Let him kill whoever he wants among you and just stop fighting back with weapons. I mean, as we saw a few weeks ago, it takes incredible, incredible power and strength to stop fighting for your own rights and to be meek. And the true meekness is heroic. It's amazing. Like Jesus modeled that level of meekness when he was arrested of laying down his rights, letting them mistreat him. But what we saw when we looked at meekness is true meekness isn't just laying down and letting people do whatever they want. True meekness is about laying down your rights, but fighting fiercely for the rights of others and defending them with whatever is necessary. Again, Jesus modeled this. When it was up to his rights, he let them arrest him. He let them beat him. He let them kill him. But when it came to the rights of others in society, whether that was the rights of, of children to have access to him, whether that was the rights of, of the people to have access to the temple so that they could worship God rather than have the temple be turned into a marketplace, he was fierce in standing up for the rights of others. For, for you to say, let him do whatever he wants to you is one thing. But to say, let him kill all the Jews in your country and don't do anything to defend or protect them, that's false peace. That's, that's, I mean, that's what's going to happen if you let Hitler in. He's going to kill all the Jews. You know that. You're being complicit in what he's doing if you settle for that kind of false peace. Settling for and embracing false peace harms everyone involved. Settling for and embracing false peace harms everyone involved because it allows everyone involved to live a lie. It allows everyone involved to continue pretending things are okay when they're absolutely not. It robs our relationships of, it, of their life-giving potential. And far too often we settle for false peace in our relationships with others. Sure, there's no fighting, but it's not real peace. It's just a, a temporary ceasefire. We're not actively fighting, but the war's not over. I mean, our relationships are kind of like North and South Korea, right? Like, well, no one's, no one's shot, a, shot in a couple decades, but we're still actively at war. We're still just staring at one across, another across our relational DMZ, waiting for someone to take a wrong step so we can launch a full invasion if necessary. How many of our relationships are like that? It's, it's the easy way. It's the comfortable way because you don't have to do anything about it. Having this temporary ceasefire, just avoiding one another as much as possible, being polite when we have to interact with one another, but avoiding working through our issues, avoiding making true peace. It's the easy way. Because being a true peacemaker is uncomfortable. There's often a fear, right? Like I've, I've been there. If I say something to try and bring peace in this relationship, it's just gonna bring conflict. Like for me, this often shows itself physically. If I have to 
confront someone about something in our relationship, you know what happens? My heart starts beating really fast. My hands and feet start like tapping a little bit, like jittery. My, my throat starts to get a little tight. I feel like I'm losing my voice. You know what that is? It's my body physically telling me, I don't want to do this because it's uncomfortable. My body recognizes this is an uncomfortable situation, so it makes me feel physically uncomfortable in the moment so that I will run away from it because it's scary. And I'm comfortable sharing this because I know I'm not the only one who feels this way. We all are afraid of this. Afraid that if I name the problem, I'm gonna make the person lose face. I'm gonna make the person angry. I'm just gonna make things worse. But you know the truth? The truth is the conflict is already there in that relationship. It's just below the surface. Trying to bring peace and start that conversation, that's not gonna bring conflict. It's just gonna expose the kind of conflict that's already there. It's kind of like if you have a weird bump on your neck, you're like, I don't wanna go to the doctor because what if he says I have cancer? Then I have cancer. It's like, well, you have cancer, whether or not you go to the doctor, all the doctor's gonna do is tell you what's actually wrong with you. He's not gonna put the cancer there. The cancer is already there. But getting it checked gives you clarity. Is it actually cancer? Maybe you're losing sleep over some false alarm. If it is cancer, what treatment options are available to you? What type of cancer is it? Naming the conflict, it's uncomfortable because it's giving a diagnosis to the problem and healing that problem might, might require something intense. Just like healing surgery or healing cancer requires surgery or chemo or radiation. But as long as you're content to pr pretend everything's okay, to ignore whatever treatment is needed, the disease can't heal. You can't have true peace in the relationship until you actually recognize that something is wrong. And Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. Being peacemakers, it's an active thing, not a passive thing. It's not just sitting back and saying, well, I didn't start the fight, so it's not my problem. It's actually stepping in to get involved and actively work to bring peace. Sometimes to truly bring peace requires us to make waves, to, to bring things into the open. And if you're like, well, that, that can't be right. Again, think of Jesus. He is the ultimate peacemaker. He brings peace between humanity and God. And yet when he found people buying and selling in the temple, what did he do? He flipped over their tables. He took some cords and wove them together and made a whip so he could beat people and drive them out of there. That's not typically what comes to mind when you think of a peacemaker, is it? No, but he, he knew that to pretend things were okay with Israel's worship when they weren't wasn't the path to peace that in order to get to a place where true peace could be operating in Israel's worship, he had to start a fight and disrupt what was going on so people could see that there's a lie happening here. Bring attention to that so that they could start going towards true peace. True peacemaking can be disruptive. Sometimes we have to fight for peace, as ironic as that sounds. So how do we become peacemakers? Well, let's look at the path to peace. We haven't discussed it every week of our study, but there's actually a logic and a progression to the Beatitudes. You know, if you were to take this one on your own, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It could be really tempting 
to just be like, all right, let's go. I'm gonna bring peace in all the relationships where I see conflict. I'm gonna go in guns blazing and just be the peacemaker. You could, you could love doing this task of bringing peace more than you love the people you're supposedly trying to help because you just wanna be the hero who fixes everything. The one who comes in and, and makes the problem right when it's not. But in order to be true peacemakers, in order to, to actually help bring true peace and not just make things worse, we need God to do work in us before we try and do anything to help others. We need humility. Like we need to become poor in spirit. That's the first beatitude. Otherwise, when we come in to try and help, our pride is just gonna fuel the fire of that conflict that's already raging. We need to confess what's wrong in our own hearts and deal with that so that when we're trying to help others deal with what's wrong in their hearts, we're not being hypocritical in that process, which means we need to be people who mourn our sin. That's the second beatitude, if we're gonna be true peacemakers. If we're actually gonna be agents of reconciliation and peace, we need to lay down our right to fight for what we deserve. We need to be meek. That's the third beatitude, or else we're gonna come in with all sorts of ulterior motives when we're trying to bring peace. We need to truly love and fight for what's right, not just for a stop to the fighting. We need to be those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the fourth beatitude. We need to have a genuine love and concern for others. That's the merciful, the fifth beatitude. We need to stop pretending to be something we're not because how much conflict comes from people pretending to be something they're not? If we're pretending to be something we're not, we're just gonna, again, fuel the fire of this conflict, which means to truly be peacemakers, we need to be pure in heart, the sixth beatitude. It's only when we follow the path of all the previous beatitudes that we're in a place where we're ready to be true peacemakers. And as we see next week, if you keep following that path, that's often gonna lead to persecution and suffering because that's the path to true blessing that Jesus calls his followers to be on. And why do we have to follow this path of the Beatitudes in order to be true peacemakers? Because all of us were born with a broken relationship with God. The Bible says that you and I are created to live in a loving relationship with God of submission and dependence on him, and that we are supposed to get our energy from li for life from this relationship. Just like a Tesla gets its energy from the plug in the wall, we are supposed to get our energy for life from this relationship with God. But our attitude towards God from birth, it's not one of love. It's one of hostility. Like, we don't want anything or anyone else telling us how to live our lives. We don't, we want to be our own boss. So we tell God, get off the throne. Let me, let me be in charge of things because I'm gonna do a better job running my own life than you will. So don't tell me how to live my life. And, and this creates a conflict in that relationship that's supposed to be our source of life. And all of us are born in that state of conflict, not of peace towards God. And as long as that relationship with God is broken, as long as there's conflict rather than peace, in that vertical relationship, there's gonna be conflict rather than peace in our horizontal relationships because we're all cut off from that power source that's supposed to be giving us the strength to do these relationships right. 
If we're going to have true peace in our relationships with other human beings, we first need peace in our relationship with God. And it's only those who have followed the path of the Beatitudes to this point who have peace in their relationship with God. Because this problem of conflict with God, it's deep enough that we can't fix it through our own effort. Nothing you and I can do can mend what's broken there. And so we need to reach a point where we recognize that, that we're helpless to fix it on our own. Because when we reach that point, God is more than willing to step in and do that work of bringing peace. Colossians chapter 1 verse 20, it says, through Jesus' death on the cross, that God is reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, that's the verb form of this word peacemakers we're looking at today, making peace by the blood of his cross. And here's what that means. For those who trust in Jesus, the death of Jesus on the cross pays the price to heal our relationship with God, to bring peace in that relationship. But it doesn't stop there. He, he actually is healing all of everything and bringing peace in the universe. Because in the beginning, humanity was created to rule over creation as God's stewards. When we failed, it messed everything up. But Jesus now is at work bringing peace and restoration and reconciliation and healing to everything. Jesus has not only set us as individuals, but the entire universe on a trajectory of peace and restoration. And if all of creation, including us, is on this trajectory towards peace, then becoming people who work for peace in our day-to-day interactions with others is the only reasonable response we can have if we're God's followers. And how do we practically do that? Well, let me give you a few steps. Step one, pray. We just saw in Colossians 1.20, bringing peace is God's work. Bringing peace is God's work. Jesus is inviting us to join God in that work. But at the end of the day, only God can bring peace. In our relationships with one another, in the conflicts between nations, only God can bring peace because he is the ultimate peacemaker. So if we want to bring peace and not just beat our heads against the wall, we need to start with prayer. Step two is go with humility. If you try and step into a conflict, whether it's your own conflict with someone else or conflict between two other people, and your goal is to be the savior and the hero who rescues everyone, you've lost already. If people are actually going to engage with you, they need to know that you care about them more than you care about fixing their problems. Like husbands, If you're married and you're a husband, you know this. How often does your wife come to you with a problem and you're like, well, let me give you the solution to this problem. And the wife's like, no, I don't want a solution. I just want you to understand. And as husbands, we're like, why? But it's true. Like if if they know that you care, you often don't even need the solution. They just need to know that they're loved. If people feel like you're their project, if people feel like you're there to fix them, then you're not going to make peace in whatever conflict is already there, and you're going to create a new conflict. True peacemaking requires humility. It requires us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to lower ourselves out of love for others, and to seek their good. So step two, go with humility. Step three, be honest. So much conflict in our world is allowed to just linger and keep going on 
under the surface because no one is honest about the problems that they see. So if there are problems, name them. I know, it's terrifying, right? But if there are problems, name them. If it's your fault, apologize. Take ownership, confess what you've done, ask for forgiveness. If someone else hurt you, talk to them one-on-one about it. Now realize, talking to them one-on-one means we are not going around complaining to everyone else about the problem while avoiding that person. We're not uh, trying to gossip about them in impolite Christian ways, you know, like sharing it as a prayer request. Hey guys, we all need to pray for Joey. He's got some problems with lying going on right now. I know because he lied to me last week. So yeah, keep him in prayer. Like, don't do that, right? Just go to Joey and be like, hey, I think you lied to me. What's up with this? Don't gather a posse to have your back and like come in all intimidating to Joey or whoever it may be. Jesus has instructions for how to escalate if people don't respond properly when you talk to them one-on-one. But the first step is always go directly to the person. Talk to them one-on-one. Tell them what's wrong. If you see someone else hurting another person and you're not in the middle of it, don't gossip about it. Don't brush it off and say, it's not my problem. Who am I to get involved? Go to the person who's causing the problem. Tell them what you saw. Again, with humility, I might be wrong. I might totally misunderstand what's happening here, but this is what I thought I saw. Am I right? Name the problem. Again, it's like diagnosing cancer. The Bible describes the church as a body. If you're inside a body and you have some cells that are fighting and trying to destroy other ones, that body cannot survive. If, if the church is going to be a healthy body, we need to deal with the conflict and the cancer that happens within it so we can have true health, true peace. Step four, be willing to be reconciled. Again, this can be hard. Sometimes like we just have been treated so badly that we don't want peace. We want to just hold on to our right to be angry. We want to make the other person pay. I think for this step, it's really good to remember what Jesus did for us to reconcile us to God. Because if he was willing to lay down so much, if he was willing to suffer and die so that we could have peace with God, that's the only thing that's going to give us the strength to let go of very real hurts and actually seek peace. And step five, kind of connected to that, bear the cost or pay the cost. When Jesus made peace and he reconciled all things to God, do you remember how he did it? How did Jesus make peace? Sunday school answer. The cross, yes. It took his death. The cost to bring peace is very high. And as we'll see next week, when we try to live as peacemakers, the reward that we're often given by the world is suffering and persecution. The cost of bringing peace is very high. But even when we're not persecuted for it, bringing peace often means forgiving. And forgiveness is costly. The whole point of forgiveness is that you've done something that puts you in debt to me. And rather than forcing you to pay off that debt yourself, I'm paying off that debt. It might be a financial debt, like you borrowed money from me, you can't repay it, and so I'm swallowing that debt. It might be a social debt that you shamed me or made me lose face, and I'm not making you pay that back. It could be a physical debt that you somehow hurt me or harmed me physically. It might be another type of debt. Regardless of the nature of the debt, forgiveness means paying the price myself rather than making you pay it. It's costly. 
But again, it's what Jesus did for us. In order to be true peacemakers, we need to forgive, and forgiveness is costly. If we want to be peacemakers, we need to be willing to pay the price. And then six, recognize that true peace isn't always possible. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, live at peace with everyone as much as it's in your power, which means there are times where it's not in your power to bring peace. And that can be for different reasons. Maybe someone just refuses to acknowledge that they've done anything wrong, or they refuse to recognize that there is a conflict. Maybe seeking peace would require you to compromise on things that you can't compromise on. Like Jesus, he couldn't make peace with the Pharisees because in order to have peace with them, he would have had to deny who he was, the reality and truth of who he was. Jesus never calls us to deny the truth for the sake of peace. He calls us to lay down our rights and desires for the sake of peace, absolutely. He never calls us to deny the truth for the sake of peace. And so when there are times where you've done all you can to make peace and peace just isn't possible, we have to let go. Because there comes a point where if we keep trying to push for peace, it's just gonna create more conflict. But don't be discouraged. Jesus calls us to be peacemakers, and he wouldn't have done that if peacemaking was an impossible task. Right? Jesus has set the whole trajectory of the universe on the course for peace. Peace wins in the end. And Jesus has a great promise to the peacemakers. And I know this one's short, don't worry. He says they will be called the sons of God. Now, why will the peacemakers be called sons of God? We have a couple sayings in English that I think help explain this. Have you ever heard the apple doesn't fall far from the tree? If not, maybe you've heard this one, like father, like son. Yeah, that's what's going on here. Our heavenly father is a peacemaker. When we live as peacemakers and do things that bring peace, we're acting like our father. And with all the Beatitudes, this one will be fulfilled fully in eternity and partially right now. In eternity, those who trust in Jesus and become peacemakers will live forever with God as his children. But right here, right now, when we live and act in ways that bring peace, the world notices. The night before his death, Jesus told his followers, by this will all people know that you are my followers, by your love for one another. Jesus says, if you want people to know that you follow me, love one another really well. A church full of peacemakers is a church full of love. A church full of peacemakers is a church full of love because it's a church where people care more about their relationships with one another than they do about their own rights, which is incredible. And it's different than anything you see in the world. When the world sees this kind of love, they're gonna notice there's something different. If you're not here, or if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I hope that you watch us and you see something different in the way that we interact with and love one another. You know, at my old church, there was this group of guys, and every Sunday, they would, they would get this group of inner-city ethnic minority kids and hang out with them. They went out of their way to bridge these ethnic and socioeconomic boundaries that, that most of society just ignores these kids, but they showed them love. And one of these guys had a coworker who heard about what was happening and was like, I want to see this. Like, this is, I've never heard of this type of thing happening before. I want to see what you guys are doing with these ethnic minority kids. So she came out to church one Sunday and 
watched and then hung out with them all afternoon and saw what they did with the kids. And then you know what happened? She came back the next week and the week after that and the week after that because there was something, something about the way they loved those kids and loved one another that she had never seen before. It was different, but it was beautiful and she loved it. The, the fact that they were going out and being peacemakers was appealing to her and she started to recognize the thing that's different about them is that they're children of God. And I want that. I want that for myself. I want to be a child of God because I want to, to be a peacemaker like that and I want to love like that. And she ended up becoming a Christian through seeing these guys make peace across ethnic and social boundaries. And now, guess what? She's involved in ministries around Hong Kong because she's a child of God and she is now working to bring peace in, in various different ways. She looked at these guys. She saw them making peace. She said, they are sons of God. I want to be one too. Isn't that awesome? Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemaking, it's not glamorous. It's not gonna, it's not gonna get you famous, most likely. It's hard work. It's costly. It's uncomfortable. It may get people upset with you. It's impossible to do without God being at work in you. But if you're a Christian, you have a savior who endured costly, uncomfortable, hard work so that you could have peace with God and he calls you to follow in his footsteps. And if you're not a Christian, God is inviting you today to have this peace with him through Jesus so that you can be a peacemaker as well. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the ultimate peacemaker, that you came and took initiative to seek peace with us when we were far away from you, all through our own fault. And God, we pray that you would be working in our hearts, giving us the strength to seek peace in our relationships, in our world, that we'd be willing to, to take these steps, even if they're uncomfortable, of seeking peace and reconciliation I pray that we would be a church that loves one another, that as people look at the way we love one another, they would say, the only way that's possible is God working among them. Teach us to love, teach us to seek peace, teach us to forgive. In Jesus' name, amen.